I'm glad you are here this morning. We are continuing our series, Distracted. Distra- have y'all been battling the squirrel this week? Have you been battling the squirrel? Have you walked past your nightstand and saw that word sitting there and you thought, I got to go back. I got to go back. I got to go. I got to read. I got to. You know what? I, I preached the sermon and I'm walking past my word and I still are thinking, Lord, I, I got, it's called, I'm going to get to it later, Lord. I'm going to get to it later. And he says, Scott, you, you, go, you, can't, you can't do this, man. You have to sit down right now. And so uh, I missed one of my appointments. But you know what? I made the most important appointment. And so I'm praying you do the same thing too. So we're going to continue this morning on distracted. Show that picture. Have you ever, have you ever, uh, y'all ever done it before? <laughs> Lord, let's go ahead and open the altars right now. <laughs> you know, when you look at this picture for a second, what you see is you may have passed the test and said you weren't blind, or maybe you had them 6X glasses on when you took your test and you still passed it and they gave you your driver's license. But whether or not you passed that test or not, this is the test that matters. And so what we're looking at is, are you distracted? Because what I know right here is that I used to have a friend, he was blind, and he always wanted to drive. His name was Kirk. Kirk could do anything. He never, you never told Kirk no. He served everywhere possible. Did you know that he was our best cameraman we ever had? I'm telling you no joke at all. Kirk was the best cameraman because he listened to someone giving him instructions, and he would want to drive but do you know that the person who is texting, you know, is the same as a person who can't see when you're driving because you and I know that you're distracted. And when you're distracted, it's the same thing as not being able to see, right? Because both can't see the road. Some of y'all are like, I don't even want to say amen because Pastor Scott, let me tell you what. I'll be down there on the altar with you guys, okay? So don't feel like I'm throwing a one-way street of conviction up here. But here's what I want you to know. One has a disability... And the other one has a distraction. The danger is when our distractions become our dysfunctions. That's what we got to pay attention to. See, you may not have the ability to see, but you've lost the ability to focus when you're distracted. Amen? Go right back to where you were at. You know, well, I'll, I'll just be honest. One time I was driving, Paul Clavey called me out on it. He sent me a text and said, quit texting and driving. Boy, I was, I was, red. I was just guilty. And I was like, yeah, nobody wants a dead pastor, Paul. You're right. You're right. But I was distracted. I didn't even know he passed me by. I wonder how many folks were passing by in life because we're so distracted. But here's what I know. We have lost the ability to see because we've lost the ability to focus. And I'm going to just throw these points at you this morning. The distance between distractions and disabilities or the distance between distractions and dysfunctions is actually disobedience. That's the distance between uh, a distraction and a dysfunction is disobedience. How far you disobey determines the severity of your uh, dysfunction. And so the greater the disability, the greater the dysfunction. And so this morning I want to talk to you about simply this. It's entertaining distractions to the point of dysfunctions. Entertaining distractions to the point of dysfunctions because we all have distractions that come into our view, but what we do with those distractions 
is what really matters. Pray with me this morning. Lord in heaven, I pray. Uh, God, open our heart. God, as we walk through your word and as we see, Father, not a great example of a man. Lord, he shows us everything that we should not be. But I pray, Father, that in his reflection, in his mirror, God, that we would look at ourselves, Father, and we would find any likeness like him. And that you would show it to us. And that you would show us what we are supposed to do in response to those things. Lord, your word calls us, Lord, a fool, Father. If we look into the mirror, God, and we walk away having seen what needs to be changed and not change it. And so I pray, God, this morning that allow us to be more like you, God, and less like a man, Father, who is selfish and cares only of himself and his position and his pride. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. So turn with me to uh, second, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Imagine driving down the road blind. That's one thing, right? But driving with your children is a whole other issue. Because it's not just you, it's everybody else around you. And so I don't want to just this morning look at a dysfunctional man who is, who is uh, dysfunctional due to his embracing of his distractions. I want to look at a dysfunctional parent, a parent who led the nation of Israel in dysfunction and caused the glory of the Lord to depart from Israel. How would you like to be the one that caused the glory of the Lord to depart after 200 years of the Lord following around? That's exactly what happened to the, the high priest of Eli. So when, when the Lord came and used Moses to deliver Israel out of Egypt, he was with them from then all the way into the time of Joshua, when Joshua led them into the promised land, and from Joshua to some hundred years after Joshua, where the judges ruled the earth. Here we have Eli. Eli is actually the last uh, judge um, before we get to Samuel, who uh, reigned over Israel and judged Israel before we get to Saul the king. So here Eli is the high priest, and as the high priest, high priest is a, a familial position. So that means it's passed down from father to son, father to son, going all the way back to uh, Aaron, uh, Moses' brother. And so what we see here is that this job as a high priest was a very important job because their, his job was to enforce the covenant that God had made with Israel. But he was also supposed to direct the people to complete the duties of the temple and the law of Moses while directing the hearts of the people towards God. This was the high priest's job. But he also handled the sacrifices. He also handled the offerings. His job was to bless the people. And probably the most important position that, or the most important thing he did, which we're most uh, aware of, was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when he would bring in the sacrifice once a year and he would make an atonement for all of Israel's sin. This was important. And so not only was it important for Israel then, but it was important for us because this high priest was a type, a shadow, a symbol of who Jesus Christ would be in the New Testament. And so whatever the priest was in the Old Testament, he was portraying who Christ would be. So if you have a corrupt high priest in the Old Testament, then you are portraying a corrupted character in our high priest in Jesus. And as you can tell or, or, or guess, that is not something that the Lord thinks kindly upon. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let me just tell you that uh, I had a different message already prepared in my heart, and the Lord hit that reset buzzer, and so I had to start all over again about 5 p.m., so it's been great. 
so this is not the normal message. Uh, I don't have cute little three points to throw at you this morning. We're just going to come at this expositorily, so we're just going to come through it line by line, measure upon measure, and see what the Lord has to say. So I say all that to say, take your own notes this morning, all right? <laughs> Write down the scripture and let the Lord speak to you, because as I read through this myself, um, I said, good point, Lord. Good point. Good point. And so let's look at him this morning. Here's the first thing we see of the sons of Eli. They had some sins. And it begins in verse 12 is where we'll pick up, and we'll kind of chop through there just to kind of skip um, Samuel's uh, interactions. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when, in, when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is, where they, this is what they did at Shiloh. Not always they did this, but always at Shiloh they did this. To take to, to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw. Now, the reason why he would ask that is because you can sell raw meat, you can't sell boiled meat. And so he was probably profiting off of this. It wasn't because he had his own cavender seasoning. He wanted to do his own thing. But there was some profit in that. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, which belongs to the Lord, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And the word contempt here is the same word that the Lord used in the wilderness when he rejected the people, when he didn't allow the people to enter the promised land, and when he opened up the grave and swallowed a whole tribe uh, while they were alive and killed them and took them down to Sheol um, because they were in contempt of the Lord. So no small word here. The second sin they had, actually there's a third sin, but the second one wasn't as, as significant. The, the second sin here is, um, is the sin of immorality. Here, here's my question. As, as I've been reading down through here, I'm thinking these boys are doing wrong, the sons are doing wrong. And my question is, is if the sons are doing wrong, where's daddy at, right? Because I don't know about you, but what time I had with my father, he was waiting for me to do something wrong. He was all on top of that to correct me. But not the, not the case with Eli. So we continue in verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's pretty bad, guys. That's, that's pretty bad. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of the Father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Can you imagine having transgressed the Lord so greatly that he would not allow you to hear counsel? He would not allow you to hear rebuke? just so he could judge you. And then he goes on, here, here are the sins of Eli. So now we get to verse 29. We'll skip down through here. And here is the real sin that we're going to pay attention to. This is a place where Eli's distractions became his dysfunction because of his disobedience. First Samuel 2.29 says, Why then do you scorn? Underline that. 
That means to treat with disdain or to look down upon or to count of no worth. My sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. So what we see right here is that, that they're scorning. The, the Lord says, you're scorning my stuff. Eli asked how, how, how he could care more. The Lord asked Eli, how could you care more about what your sons wanted more than what God wanted? How could you be a high priest and what mattered was what your sons wanted and not the God who provided for your sons? As a parent, Eli should have corrected that right away. When his kids said, you know what, we want something that's contradicting to the word of God, then Eli should have said, no, it's not right. Parents, hear me. When your kids want something contradictory to the Word of God, the goal is not friendship with your children. The goal is not even relationship with your children. The goal is mentorship. The goal is discipleship. The goal is eternity. Their children, they'll ask dumb things because they're dumb most of the time. Amen? Y'all can clap on that. They're not really dumb. They just don't, they don't know. They've not seen the world like you and I have seen the world. They don't know the things that will aggravate. They've not played it out. They don't understand that their selfishness creates a problem down the road. And as parents, mom, dad, anytime our kids ask something contrary to the word of God or the ways of God or the will of God, we only have one answer. No. No, no, and I don't even have to explain it to you. Go to your room and read your word. <laughs> Eli was willing to honor what his sons wanted to do, but he was not willing to honor what God asked him to do. Parents, are we scorning God? Are we honoring our, our children's requests above God's request? Single people, are we scorning God? Whenever we honor the request of the people in our lives over the Lord, what the Lord has asked us to do, we are, we are treating his commands with scorn. We are treating his commands with disdain. People in your life never have a greater word than God himself. It's important for us to re-understand re or reinterpret the priorities of our life. We don't have to give in to people just because we know they're significant or they need us in a way. Listen, if you love them always rebuke them, always correct them, always discipline them. You don't love someone if you don't correct them. Can I tell you, you can't run from conflict in your life. You can't run from conflict. Conflict always comes. The Word of God says that conflict is necessary. How can iron sharpen iron, right, unless there's conflict? And sometimes we, we, we're, we're so passive-aggressive we, we seek false peace so much. And I'm talking about in our family. I'm not talking about in our church family. I'm talking about in our family. Because you and I know it's a whole lot easier to say yes because we don't want to catch attitude. We don't want to catch rebellion. We don't want to catch all that. We know that. Every child has the capability of doing that. You and I did the same thing to our parents. And so what we do is we're tired at the end of the day. We've been working hard. We've been dealing with childish people at our work. And now we have to deal with children at our house. And it's easier for us just to say, okay, but you don't love your children. I'm just going to tell you right now, you can disagree with them. You can be angry at me, but you don't love your children. 
if you say yes because it's easier for you. Eli said yes because it was easier for him. But his yes was in contradictory or contradiction to the Lord's no. Then it goes on to say, you honor your sons above me, Eli. How is it you honor your sons above me? In fact, his sons, when we start off in verse 12, it says that his sons were the sons were worthless sons. And in the Hebrew, it actually says his sons were sons of the devil, Belial, sons of the devil. I, I, you know, thank God I ain't got no sons, but that would be horrible for my sons to be called sons of the devil. But Eli is listening to his sons who are sons of the devil's request. But here's the reason why they were doing wrong. It wasn't that the fact that Eli was just honoring his kids' request above God's commands. It wasn't just that. It was wrong because he was saying, you honor your sons above me. In other words, you're, you're doing what your sons are doing. You're, you're honoring their ways higher than my ways. What were their ways? Their ways were st- stealing out of the offering. They were taking out of the offering. Those things belonged to God. They were tithes and offering, and they belonged to God. And here you have priests stealing from God, and, and Eli is okay with it. Eli is okay with it. I just want to remind you this morning, you think, I would never steal out of the offering plate. I would never do such a thing. I would never steal from the Lord. But let me tell you what they were actually doing. They weren't just stealing. They were repurposing They were repurposing what the Lord had purposed for, for for their own benefit. And you and I have things in our life that the Lord has given to us for our purpose. And when we repurpose those things for our own benefit, it is the same. It is the same. It is stealing. It is misleading. It is deception. It's no different because you took what the Lord gave to you with a specific purpose and you redefined that purpose for something else that benefited you. And this is all that Eli's sons were doing, repurposing something. In fact, this concept is common throughout all of the Old Testament and through the New Testament. It's called making something unholy or making it common. When God said that thing belongs to me, he says it's holy. It belongs to me. It has a purpose. Don't make it uncommon. Don't make it common. Don't make it unholy. Don't make it something less than what I've called it to be. If you repurpose it for this over here instead of what I called it to be, you're making it unholy. You're making it common, and we see this all throughout Scripture. So my question is to you today, just in case you don't know or need some, uh, some prompting about what things in your life you may or may not be making un- uh, unholy or making common, maybe it's your time. Maybe it is your tithe. Maybe it's your relationship status. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your talents your abilities, your skills, maybe it's your emotions that you've repurposed for your own benefit. In fact, even, even the things we, we don't really want, what we do want, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. And to take vengeance from the Lord and repurpose it is wrong too. Unforgiveness, have you repurposed unforgiveness? 
Because unforgiveness in your heart is supposed to remind you of your need for him to forgive you and give away what you feel like you deserve because someone transgressed against you and make you more like Christ. If you forgive them, then you too will be forgiven before your Father in heaven. Don't forget to repurpose those things. Is your body been repurposed? Have you repurposed your body? Have you repurposed your possessions? What is in your hand that you know belongs to God and yet you hold tightly to it? It may not have been an offering plate, but the Lord said, here is my stuff that I have given to you. And it has a purpose. And that purpose is to bless you. But you have found another purpose, a lesser purpose, and you've redefined it so that way it benefits you. And you've not only robbed yourself, but you've robbed me of the glory I wanted to use you to bring me. And because you've done that, you've nulled yourself as a worshiper. Can I tell you the only reason why you exist, your only calling in life above everything else in life or eternity is to worship. God created you to worship. And if we nullify our reasons to worship, then what reasons are there for us to exist? It's like that phone in our hand, right? That phone that distracts us from being able to focus, so to do things that, so, uh, that belong to God, if, if, if he's given us those things, to live a dysfunctional life is the same. So we're distracted here, but when we repurpose things, we're distracted again. Both those things cause us to live a life that's distracted. Eli was distracted. He was living in such a way that caused him to maintain um, his position and his focus on things that he should not be focusing on. Look at 3.12. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Man, that is really indicting right there. For the, not the iniquity that he's done, not the iniquity that he approved, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain and he did not correct and he did not discipline them. You know what? I, I, I know folks don't want to talk about how to discipline your children, but can I tell you the word is very clear. It's very clear. And when we talk about how to discipline your children, it's not, we're not talking about opinions. We're talking about, do you believe the word of God or not? If you believe the word of God, then you are saved. If you don't believe the word of God, you are not saved. You are to believe the word of God entirely or not at all. Go find you something else to believe in. Believe in this word entirely. And so when it comes to our children, we should take no, no half step. If you partially believe in the word of God, don't expect your kids to partially obey your word. Don't compromise your word. Don't speak less of your word. Don't act less than your word. And here he is acting in a way that is not really truly loving his sons. For if he had loved his sons, he'd have rebuked them. And the only time he rebuked them is when later on in life someone was saying, hey, your sons are acting in a contempt way. And he felt more pressure from people than he did his own responsibility as a parent. But what I want you to see is simply this, is that Eli was wrong because he was distracted. He knew that what, he, what needed to be done concerning righteousness, concerning parenting, but he did not do it. James 4, 17 says this, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
Now, I've never liked that verse ever. Ever. In fact, when someone says, Scott, here's the right way, I go, I don't want to know that. I don't want to know that. Because now, now, now it all just went up on me. Now the standard's even higher. And here, Eli is realizing that, you know what, I knew the right thing. And I didn't do it. And, and I'm not saying he sinned. God calls him out as a sinner. God says, because you sin, I'm going to destroy your house. I'm not going to allow one male to live. And the last person in your house to live will grovel and cry his eyes out, begging for a morsel of bread. That's a pretty severe judgment. But when you and I, when we become so immersed in our distractions that we fail to do what is right, we are stating that we ourselves uh, are more important than everything else, we, we, even to the extent of sin. The, the, the best way to, to keep yourself from sinning in this measure when you know to do right but you don't do it is typically when you're being selfish, right? When we, when we don't do the right thing, it's because, ah, uh, if I say something, it's going to be a problem. I don't want to feel that tension, right? It's selfish. When, when, we, when we don't do the right thing but we don't, we don't do the right thing, it's because we don't have the time. We're busy. We're distracted. We got some other things going on. Our priorities are out of all those things are selfishness. So let me help you with this. I know this morning you're like, Pastor Scott, good Lord. Don't, don't, don't catch no more 5 p.m. messages from the Lord no more, right? <laughs> here's, here's the best way to safeguard yourself. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Because, amen. Because that's what Christ did for you. Christ did for you. Imagine if Jesus was passive aggressive. Imagine that. Imagine if Jesus sought false peace. We'd all be hell bent and hell bound. But Jesus in love said, you know what, I can't let you stay that way. And he could have said, you know what, I can just destroy you. Just like God told Moses a couple of times, let me just destroy them stiff-necked people and start all over again. He could have done the same thing with us. But the Lord says, you know what, I'm not going to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but I'm in humility. I'm going to count my creation more significant than me and derobe myself of glory and come down here on this earth and pick up a cross that's not mine and shame that's not mine and sin that's not mine and addiction that's not mine and problems that are not mine and carry that sin like it is mine so you can have a life that you have no idea what that's like. Because he counted himself less than you. And he counted you more significant than himself. In regards to Eli, he didn't lack the capacity to do right or even know how to know or what to know or when to know. For it says this in 22 verse, uh, 22 verse 23. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? Right there, he knows, right? He knows I'm supposed to say something, but he's not saying something until what? Until someone has come to him and said, now your sons, we got to talk about your sons. And two things really stand out to me here. One is just that. Why do you do such things? Why does it take other people <laughs> exposing your problems until you address it? But the second thing was this, that he waited until he was old and the people were complaining too much. 
Here's what I see here. He only corrects them when the failure of his priestly office outweighs the failure of his parental obligation. In other words, to me that says, when it cost him his reputation before the people, but not before God, he acted. Eli was a man who only cared about the things of God when it meant the approval of men. Can I just ask you for a second? Why are you here today? Why are you here today? Why do you sing? Why do you give? Why are you a Christian? I'm going to ask you a question. This doesn't mean to be rhetorical. I'm not trying to be a preacher that's throwing flame and fire. I really want to ask you this question. Are you, are you doing this because somebody else is watching you and you need the approval of somebody else? Or is this all that you care to do? In the face of persecution, in the face of disparity, in the face of all things that make it hard, this is not something that is easy. When people get saved, I tell them right away, you're about to start the hardest part of your life. I want to know, do you only care about the things of God because you care about the approval of men? Hopefully not. I would say that Eli's distractions were consisted in three things. One was his, empathy, his apathy, restricted him from disciplining his sons when they needed to. His indulgence, he loved that food. We would share that, but I would not take that from the Lord to eat that fat. Matter of fact, I feel like, what does Leviticus 3.16 say? The fat belongs to the Lord. It's a struggle for a pastor to know how much to eat, not to eat, right? We want to be healthy, but most of us are supposed to belong to the Lord. Okay, that's a joke, but I'm going to keep on moving right past that. <laughs> Y'all like, is he real? Is he being serious? Somebody get that brother some Weight Watchers, man. The third thing was his indecisiveness. Should I, should I discipline them? Should I not? If I, if I do, if I discipline them, it'll ruin that relationship. I love my sons. We have a good time. We, we love, we get along with each other. And if I do that, then it, then, then it might ruin that. But if I, if I follow the word of God, you know, if I, if I don't do this, I'm not a high priest, I'm not a good judge, and I don't know what to do. Don't let indecisiveness. I don't got to think. I just open the word of God and say, okay, that's what I'm going to do today. I don't got to question that. That's why I love the Word of God. It's absolute. It's not, Scott, do you think you should love your enemies? I don't get a question. I don't, I don't get an opportunity to say, well, you know, sometimes, Lord, sometimes they spit at you and, and slap you. And I don't have to ask those questions because the Lord is so clear in His Word. And if we'll just read His Word for what it is, and do what he says for us to do, will not be indecisive. Neither will be, will be indulgent. We won't look for other things to fulfill our fleshly cravings because the word and his presence and his power is enough, and we won't be apathetic because the Lord does not allow apathy. He will move you. He will convict you. So the distractions of indecisiveness, indulgence, and apathy, they all culminated to the most tragic aspect of his dysfunction, and that was hearing from God. He did not hear from God. First Samuel 3, 1 says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Eli's distractions of indecisiveness, indulgence, and apathy led him to being a dysfunctional judge 
who only enforced the law when he benefited. A dysfunctional priest who abused the office by stealing out of the offering. And a dysfunctional parent who failed to correct his sons but instead enabled them through passivity. Parents, passivity is not our friend. Passivity is your love language when you don't love your children. Because Eli willfully embraced his distractions, his disobedience made, him a, uh, made his family dysfunctional, which resulted in their death and the end of their house. It made the priesthood dysfunctional, which caused the order to cease. The Lord had to bring Samuel, who was an outsider, and bring him into the, the, the priesthood, which was the end of the priesthood. And lastly, it made the nation dysfunctional as they lost the glory of the Lord, the ark, and Israel fell into a 20-year rebellion as they served Baal and Asheroth, the idols. So what we see here is this. The severity of the dysfunction was determined by the measure of their disobedience. So let me just inventory your life, and you just take it on your own. Is your life pretty bad right now? Is your life pretty dysfunctional right now? Maybe it's a measure of disobedience that you don't realize. Maybe things are crazy. I'm not, if you're going through hell on earth right now, hear me out. I'm not saying the reason why you're going through all that you're going through is because you're being disobedient. That is not the case. Christians go through persecution all the time. We are under attack all the time. We talked about that during spiritual warfare. But what I'm saying is, is if you know, you know things are crazy, but you're not walking in obedience, then just know that the severity of your disobedience, how much you're willing to push the limit, is how much, how much dysfunction that you're willing to endure in your life. So let me tell you what I see in this exposition of the text, what I, what, I, what I read into myself. I see a father who ruined a nation because he failed to be a parent. I see a father who lost the glory of God because he cared more about the relationship with the son than a relationship with God. I see a father who cared more about what people thought of him than what his sons thought of him. I see a man or a priest who thought he could take more from God than God would provide. And I see a man who cared to hear what a man had to say, but did have no interest at all to hear what God had to say. Church, let me just tell you just for a second. As the worship team comes back, don't think for a second that a lack of parenting has no effect on this nation. Our president, our governors, our judges, our pastors, all those things have one thing in common for sure. They all came from a home. They all came from a family. And it is our responsibility to make sure that the church is establishing those people in those offices. We need to make sure that our values and his virtue is what fills those offices. It's important for us to understand. You need to remember the Genesis principle. All things reproduce after its own kind. All things reproduce after its own kind. When we look at Eli, we're somewhat disappointed that he wasn't a great parent. But if you look at his life, what we realize was simply this. He, was not a great, he's not, he wasn't a great uh, disciple either. How can you expect someone to be a godly parent when they're not even a godly person? And so when we look at our children, how do we expect our children to be godly when we're not godly parents, and we're not godly people. And I thank God for bus ministry. I had quite a few friends on bus ministry. But bus ministry cannot, it can reach the lost, and we can try to help save the lost, 
But at the end of the day, what always frustrated me when I was in youth ministry was that bus ministry was simply like this. It was trying to take a lion out of the jungle and teach him how to be a human for one day or one night and send him right back in the jungle and expect him to be a human when he was raised as a lion his entire life. And that is the problem that we have. We must understand that there is no true change unless it really originates in the home. It must start in the home. And for our church, the success of this church in the next generation will depend on the quality of leadership that is produced through our parenting. How we parent determines how our kids will be led in the next generation. I want you to know these are not easy words today. <laughs> They're not easy words. And I can stand up here to claim to love you, but if I treat you like Eli treated his sons and and not bring you to the truth that I've not really loved you. So this one I want to leave with two different statements and I'm done. The first one is simply this. The greatest tragedy in parenting is really to allow children to choose, right, themselves and who they're going to serve. We, we just can't allow them to serve. We have to train our kids. Joshua said this. As for me and my house... I'm going to talk to them first. We're going to figure out a plan, and then we're going to serve the Lord. No. He didn't ask them. He said, as for me and my house, we will. We will serve the Lord. You do what you want to do, but we're going to serve the Lord. Train up your child. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parents, listen to me. Train them to honor their parents. Train them to obey authority. Train them to treat people with respect. Train them to honor God. Train them to obey God. Train them to love the God. Train them to talk to God. Train them to listen to God. Train them to listen um, to their parents. Train them that sin doesn't pay. Train them not to live selfish lives. Train them that with disobedience comes consequence. Train them to live for God. The arrow hits where we aim it. The second thing is this, and I'm done. As a parent, your greatest responsibility is to create a household of faith. That's your greatest responsibility. What are you saying, Pastor God? What does that mean? That means a household of faith is, is an environment that provides your your student, your child, all that they need in terms of teaching and in terms of example, how to love and to serve God. Our responsibility is to make sure our home, that my girls and my wife, we make sure that our home is an environment that they can love God and serve God because of two things. One, I'm teaching them. And then the second thing is I'm walking that out because you guys know kids don't care anything about what we say. It's what we do. But listen to me. I did not say it's a parent's responsibility that you make sure your kids are saved and stay saved. Because you cannot guarantee that. Not even God can guarantee that with Adam. But what God did do is this. He created a garden that gave him everything he needed. So that way he could love God and serve God. Even though he chose other. And so if God can do that for Adam, we should do the same for ourselves. God's example is his expectation for us. 
So this morning, I want to ask you is, where is it in your life that you're struggling with some distractions? You, fall, you found yourself walking into a place of dysfunction because you've been disobedient. You've, you've devoted yourself to, to distractions. You, you like those distractions. Not all distractions are bad. But you've given yourself too, too much into them that you've caused yourself to lose focus the things that God has asked you to focus on. And maybe if you're single, it applies to you. But if you're a parent, it really applies to you. And so as the prayer team comes this morning, everybody stand with me. As the prayer team comes this morning, I want to open the altars. If you have need of a prayer for, for healing, uh, for a personal need, a private need, we would love to pray for you. But I also want to ask this morning for two specific things. And listen to me. I, I, I know, guys, that the altar, I don't know how you were raised, but the altar to me was always the walk of shame. But I, I promise you, you, you'll see your pastor at the altar a lot. Because I know full well who I am. And I know full well what I need. And I know full well that I don't have what I need. And so this altar is not a place of shame. It's a place of dependency. It's a place that says, Lord, I'll meet you and let you know I, I need these things in my life. And so let me just be clear and honest here. If you feel like you're struggling with distractions as a parent, and you're not walking, and you're not seeing the way the Lord has asked you to walk and to see as a parent, would you come down here and let me pray with you? If you've been distracted by other things and you've devoted yourself to distractions and you realize that those distractions have caused you to be disobedient, I want to pray with you this morning. If you need to know who Christ is, you've never walked with him before in your entire life, you need to have a life. You say, Pastor Scott, I want this hard life. I want a difficult life, but I want a life free of shame, free of sin, right, free of guilt. I want freedom from what I'm in. I want to pray for you. If you need healing in your body, miracle in your family, or in your finances, or whatever it might be, we want to pray for you. I'm going to pray, and you guys can come on down. Father, in the name of Jesus, no small matter is your word. And Father, I thank you that you are a loving Father. Oh, that you discipline. I've seen men in my life, Lord, who didn't discipline their sons, and some are dead and some are in jail. I thank you so much, God, you disciplined me. That you corrected me. That you showed your love for me. Pray, God, today, Father, as we've heard this word, it challenges every one of us in this room. Holy Spirit, do the work that you come to do today. Allow us to respond to your word, but more importantly, allow us to walk by it. And Father, I pray for those who are about to come down right now, Lord, whatever need that they have, I pray you would meet it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you come?